0: Listeners, this is Alan Karbelnig, who uh, I am in the process of creating a series of 10 podcasts or lectures about uh, focusing on how depth psychotherapy works. I recorded one, which was just an introduction of me, my status as a uh, training and supervising psychoanalyst, uh, my practice as consisting of half-time couples therapy, half-time individual therapy with a smattering of forensic psychology thrown in, specifically administrative law and employment law. I also explain the difference between depth psychotherapy and the other major therapy practiced around the world, which is cognitive behavioral. There's a smattering of uh, existential humanistic, but not much anymore. But among the depth psychotherapy schools, and that would include... um, Uh, I should say, uh, quick side point here. Um, So depth psychotherapy is the same as psychoanalysis is the same as psychoanalytic psychotherapy is the same as psychodynamic therapy, what they all have in common is uh, looking for uh, roots of, of injuries that are affecting people in their current lives. But it's not really a therapy focused on the past, believe it or not. It's much more on uh, how the past, as it presents itself currently, um, is, uh, is is uh, presenting itself. <laughs> I just got distracted because the metronome kept going on and I couldn't figure out how to turn that off. Shows you how much I know about uh, podcasting. So... I have a personal interest in bringing all of the warring psychoanalytic schools together. Uh, they include the Freudian, the Kleinian, the Fairburnian. In terms of modern contemporary psychoanalytic schools, there's self-psychology, which was started by Heinz Kohut in the 1970s, intersubjective theory, which was started by uh, Robert Stollerow, and uh, i blocking on her name, um, Jessica Benjamin, Bonds of Love, uh, in the 80s into 90s, and then what's called relational psychoanalysis, although it's very difficult to tell those two apart. I will get to that on some other day, because in my view, and I published this in a paper somewhere a few years ago, what they all have in common is creating a frame for the transformational process to occur In my view, depth psychotherapy is a set of transformational encounters. It's really a bounded, structured relationship, arguably an absurd, I would say definitely an absurd relationship that develops between depth psychotherapists and their patients who are facilitating this change. So uh, a common feature number one, or to use a phrase used by Robert Wallerstein, Uh, he talked about how um, uh, he just died a couple of years ago, famous American psychoanalyst. His phrase was the common background across different psychoanalytic methods. Interestingly, he, unlike me, thought that one unified theory of the mind would be found and psychoanalysis would have a theory of mind and a theory of methodology. I'm of the rather strong opinion that it will not be found. In fact, it will never be found. And instead, uh, just like we deal with the complexity of the entire universe, we deal with the complexity of depth psychotherapy by adopting certain perspectives. So if you will, psychoanalytic thinking is one perspective among essentially an infinite one, a number of them, particularly for viewing human subjectivity. And uh, within psychoanalysis, there are these various schools I just mentioned to you, some of a uh, few of which I left out, like the Lacanian school, based on the work of Jacques Lacan. And then another perspective within or beneath that is my own, which is that what they all have in common is framing, presence, and engagement. Uh, framing is about Boundaries, Creating the Environment for Transformational Encounters to Occur. That was, uh, let's see, it was lecture either one or two of this series of 10. Um, And the second, a biggie, is Presence. And Presence was definitely the last lecture, so that would be podcast or lecture number three. That's where I'm talking about the idea that regardless of whether you're Jungian, uh, Kleinian, Freudian, some combination of all those. You always, always, always bring your uh, emotional, personal, uh, psychophysiological presence to uh, patients. Um, I might have already told this story, so I apologize for that. But I remember my own internist and friend, yes, I did tell this story, who said she just didn't understand how we therapists stay there for uh, 45 or 50 minute periods and, and attend. When she gets anxious, she runs out and uh, uh, makes a phone call or uh, get she gets interrupted by a phone call. Or she takes her blood pressure and she's on to something because it is a unique and difficult uh, skill, much more difficult than it sounds to simply be present with patients. And today I begin uh, a, a probably a two part. Let's see. This is number four. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to take me four and five or four, five and six to talk about engagement, which is the third part. And what do I mean by engagement? That is the way the depth psychotherapist engages patients uh, in the the ways they're stuck in their internal and external worlds. A a side, another side uh, tributary here having to do with the development of psychoanalytic theory Uh, one of the major movements starting in the mid-20th century is what's called object relations theory, which is a very unfortunate phrase. It's really traceable back to Freud's original effort to uh, his belief that um, uh, psychoanalysis could be another one of the natural sciences, which I also don't think is possible. I think, and this I know I've mentioned before, that while you're listening right this moment, there definitely are uh, is electrical activity occurring in your brain. There are certain neur- neuronal circuitry that are being stimulated, memories that are coming up, thoughts, etc., that have a neurophysiological basis to them. But in my view, in many people's views, that's just one perspective on human subjectivity, and it doesn't really translate over into your experience of listening to this uh, lecture right this second. That is your personal subjective experience. It's much more informed by your life history, your culture, your time in history. If you were listening to this in 1950 or the year 2050, your experience would be very different because of the changes in history. And I am among many people who think that cannot be reduced to neuro. Physiology. So, but Freud wanted to make a hard science out of psychoanalysis. He never succeeded. No one has ever succeeded. Although there is a journal called Neuropsychoanalysis, which I think is kind of funny because uh, uh, I think it's impossible, but they're trying to you know, make a bridge between the two. Um, so the reason I brought up object relations theory is, so you've all heard of the original Freudian model of id, ego, and superego. And that's the idea that your entire motivation, which basically comes out of sexual urges, according to Freud, in the early 1900s, very few people sign on on that anymore. Uh, I do not, although I do think it's one of the things that drives us. Uh, Around the mid 20th century, uh, psychoanalytic scholars were moving away from the rigidity of that model and beginning to incorporate uh, interpersonal relationships, the social environment Particularly of early childhood and they were incorporating it not only in terms of real people Like your mother your father your siblings your strange uncle Charlie um, But also in terms of how that gets mapped In what they would call the internal object world Which I much prefer to call the internal drama which sounds much less scientific, etc. But it is uh, obviously much more user-friendly so that takes me back to the three big ways that any kind of depth psychotherapy works. And that's that you're engaging the patient, uh, in what is basically an ongoing internal dialogue. Uh, many, many people have said this, but Ger- George, Herbert Mead in 1934, a, uh, some kind of anthropologist, I believe a cultural anthropologist said that, uh, We human beings are unique in that we go through the world having a relationship with ourselves, much like we have a relationship with others. Hey, how can that not be true, right? It's completely true in my view. And so a lot of what you're doing in engagement is helping to bring that internal dialogue into an interpersonal dialogue, namely one between a psychoanalytic therapist and patient. Um, which now invites me to take another side journey and that would be into what's another thing that unifies all the psychoanalytic approaches that is the idea of the unconscious but uh, um, it's true whether you're Jungian Kleinian, Freudian relational psychoanalyst they all believe in the unconscious it's really the centerpiece and according to even UC Berkeley cognitive scientists, it's, an, it's a, just an irrefutable fact of our human existence that we um, uh, most of our thinking and emotional processing is unconscious. And I mean most to the magnitude of, of many millions of degrees. Uh, someone wrote a book, don't remember the name now, that talked about the brain is really a dis information system. Consciousness handles about eight, uh, who is it? 15 or 18 bits per second. And the brain is receiving 5 million bits per second of information. So, but uh, all of the various psychoanalytic theories are of course, much more interested in what's called the dynamic unconscious, which is the unconscious that is repressed or suppressed for some reason. It's socially unacceptable. It's too emotionally painful. It's too horribly traumatic. Whatever it is, it is knocked out of consciousness uh, through various uh, poorly understood uh, mechanisms. So, um, continuing my side point on the unconscious, when a patient comes in to see me, or since this lecture is intended for potential patients or beginning practitioners, or all of the above, that could always be in both categories. Uh, I want to explain a little more about, um, uh, because there's more than the unconscious. For example, there is secrets that patients have, let's say they're having an affair or God forbid they're abusing one of their children and they're telling nobody else. Um, So that is something that's conscious. So think about the unconscious more as existing on a continuum. So imagine a left to right continuum now. and way on the left is the part of the unconscious that is not really conscious, unconscious. It is conscious, but not they're not telling anyone else about. And then just to the right of that, you would have conscious but disavowed. And uh, my favorite example of that would be someone who, you know, they know they're having four glasses of wine a night. But they tell you they're only having one and they, and it it was once explained to me the difference between denial and disavowal is that a disavowal is you're conscious of it, but you're on some level choosing not to see it in denial, you actually don't see it, you're not lying when you tell the therapist you have only one glass of wine, even though you are lying, But you're not aware that you're lying. And then as you move further, if you will, to the right of this imaginary continuum, you get into deeply dissociated, deeply uh, disconnected material that's more and more unconscious. And the more you go to the right, the more uh, it is completely out of your conscious awareness. And please note, there's no depth psychotherapy in the world that would advocate for making all of the unconscious conscious that's impossible. We're always going to have a bunch of unconscious material and another kind of tricky scholarly thing about this line of work is that uh, any intelligent listener is going to think, well, if it's unconscious, how do you get to it? And uh, basically, you're looking for sort of hints or signs or, or glimmers of it. Um, in uh, the, one of my very recent lectures where I was talking about um, how I explain to patients how therapy works. One of the examples I used is, and I commonly use with patients too, when I'm orienting them to the work is, oh, you know, you might be talking about your mother and I noticed that your fists are tightly clenched. Have you ever noticed that? And that would be an example of kind of a hint of the unconscious that you then chase. Okay, so, oh my God, I have got distracted on object relations theory, I've got distracted on the unconscious. To tie it back now to the idea of engagement Uh, trust me, it does all relate. And that's because when you are doing the engagement function, oh, I hate using that phrase because it sounds like it's a technique. Um, For some reason, I just don't like the word technique or method because it makes people sound like they're things. But there is a method to the madness of psychoanalysis. There is a way that you're not just doing rent-a-friend, you are facilitating a transformational encounter. And there are the three basic ways to do that. Framing, I've gone over that exhaustively. Presence, rather exhaustively. Now we're talking about engagement. So an engagement is about accessing unconscious content uh, uh, of a could be drive, could be a huge set of rage or hugely built up sexual feelings that aren't being coped with, could be trauma. uh, I personally have these kind of four headings that I often think about that any patient who comes in to see me has either one or some combination of four things. The first one would be deeply unmet need states. That would be mother or father, mostly that they just didn't really feel enough love, a connection or attention from attunement with. Uh, the second, which is the bulk of Freudian psychoanalysis deals with this, is um uh conflicts internal conflicts so i love my wife and i hate my wife i love my boyfriend but he really turns me off in these other ways um and of course much deeper conflicts than that like the classical oedipal that no one believes literally much anymore but gee i love my uh my mother and i really want to have her but i'm so upset that she's with my father uh, the third one would be trauma, which could happen when you're 1, 3, 15, or 100 times before the age of 20. Um, and the fourth one is developmental delay. That's a whole long story, but basically a lot of people's development is uh, delayed by trauma or by those other two things, unmet need states or conflict. And... Um, a lot of what you're trying to achieve in the work boy if i had to put it into one word it would be integration or it might be maturation which uh that one of course ties in the idea of getting people back into a place where they're moving forward and growing so if we think about engagement there's and you and you think about well let's talk about nonverbal first there's a there's uh, according to empirical science, you're actually engaging with patients, and patients are with their psychoanalysts primarily on nonverbal levels. So there's not much to say about that. Get the uh, irony there? Because I would have to be verbal to say something about it. Um, but it. But uh, Wilfred Bion used this term called reverie. That would be the idea that, as the psychoanalyst might get information, say, from a daydream or or just a feeling state that uh, doesn't translate easily into a verbal, uh, um, to verbal uh, uh, interplay or discussion. So, if you think about uh, means of engaging patients only in terms of verbal activities, it's pretty much five or six total, which is kind of astonishing when you consider how endlessly complex psychoanalysis is, because it is endlessly complex on one level, but then on another level, it's reducible to these uh, five or six ways of intervening. Uh, The the most complex one is interpretations, and I'm not going to get into that at all today, because that's going to be a whole separate lecture slash podcast. The other ones are confrontations, clarification of feelings, empathy, and uh, this you want to use very sparingly, but there's other kind of techniques like asking questions or what I would call looping back. And that is, um, uh, I'll, this I actually use quite commonly where someone is talking about, they walk in and they say to me, I wish they would say this to me. I'm actually using this from a different, uh, uh, I'm I'm, I'm masculinizing a feminine story a patient would say to me man i love the way you dress um, i wish my husband would go shopping with you and then i would i would wait and see how the session would progress from there but i might it would be typical of me particularly if i thought that was an interesting statement which i would think it was interesting uh, for me to loop back and say you know i want i want to bring you back to uh what you said when you walked in. Usually I'd wait for a moment that it would tie in with what they said with what, when they uh, walked in. Because there is a way that every uh, psychoanalytic session, and this ties back a bit to framing and presence, is a sample of behavior from the time you first look at the patient in the waiting room until the session comes to an end and they bring it to an end, or you bring it to an end, there's a, there's a 45, in my case, sometimes 50 minute sample of behavior of interaction that you get to study in extreme depth and that is a kind of a Rorschach card of the person's life. And when I get into interpretation, I think that'll make a lot more sense to you. So, so the, verb, the, the verbal ones that do not have to do with uh, interpretation, Let me go through them one by one. Uh, One of my supervisors who is of a Kleinian orientation said, uh, and I love these generalizations, even though I never agree pretty much with any of them, um, that, that one way to view psychoanalytic psychotherapy as the end result is to help people have a much greater access to the complexity of their emotions and uh, as I often do with generalizations, I would say, I agree with that. I just don't think that's all there is to it. So I remember very clearly a guy I had actually in couples therapy and and the only emotion he ever came up with was frustration. Uh, maybe for six months when he would talk about various interactions with his wife or other people, that was the only one uh, word he used, frustration. And my use of clarification of feelings with him would be a whole range of verbal or nonverbal interchanges. Um, like a, a verbal, nonverbal combine might be my saying, uh, Hey, you know, Joe, I noticed you use that word frustration a lot. Like you just used it here in the room about how you're feeling about the couples therapy itself. Then I might be silent. So that would be an example of where I used a verbal intervention looking to clarify feelings, followed by a non-verbal one. Or I might use another verbal one, which I did a million times with this guy. Or I would say, uh, what, other, what other emotions might you be experiencing? What other feeling words come to your mind? I, I don't advocate anything hokey like getting out that chart that is used with autistic spectrum patients. Some people use it with them. It shows like this is a happy face, this is a sad face, this is a face full of grief. But I prefer to do that more interpersonally. So that that in a phrase is what clarification of feelings about a a trickier one is confrontations, and that's that's just what it sounds like. It's basically confronting an inconsistency. when you work with very regressed borderline personality style patients, they will often display uh, alternating idealization and devaluation behavior. So they uh, they might literally tell me for two weeks, I'm the greatest psychoanalyst in California. And then the two weeks tell me I'm the worst. The worst and they should quit because I'm incompetent. I had one fellow just in the last two years tell me I really he really thought after every session with him, I should call a supervisor because I was completely incompetent and I needed help. Um, So a confrontation with that man often consisted of, you know, Joe, do you remember just last week when you told me I was the um, best psychologist in the state of California? Uh, So in that case, the confrontation is to try to integrate dissociated emotional states or cognitive emotional states. Because he'd be very angry, by the way, when he's telling me how incompetent I am. And then he would be um loving and kind when he's telling me how great I am. Uh, confrontations also include a lot of commonsensical things that all of you listeners would know about, even if you've never had a single therapy session or even met a psychologist. Again, it's inconsistencies. Um, You know, you mentioned two months ago that you were really worried about your drinking and now you told me you hardly ever drink. Um, uh, Again, trying to integrate the inconsistency or a patient might be smiling when they're telling you a very sad story or might be weeping when they're telling you a very funny story. And then the confrontation would be about the um, disconnect between their affect, which means their uh, visual expression of emotion, the way they bodily and facially express it, as opposed to the words they're using to describe. What are other confrontations um, when you're pretty sure there's other feelings there that they're not talking about? Um, uh, or uh, I just started therapy with this lovely young woman who is uh, has a rather masochistic style and um, I, I guess this would qualify as a confrontation. I just brought up to her. It's only about our fourth or fifth session, but we're starting to talk about, she's been in this abusive relationship for nine years, uh, with a male and, um, she tends to overly sacrifice. And I brought to her attention, and this would be, this is sort of verboten in the realm of therapy that in my very first session, I have, I don't remember now what happened, but Something was up where I had to keep her waiting five minutes and you just don't want to do that. So I actually went out and introduced myself to her in the waiting room and then apologized profusely and said, "Um, uh, I'm so sorry, X, Y, Z is going on. I'm going to be with you in five minutes. I'm lovely to meet you. Um, You can tell I'm not one of those those kind of neutral, cold analytic types. But she responded so over the top with, hey, no problem at all please don't worry, take your time, that three or four sessions later when we're talking about the abusive relationship and propensity to uh, to access to others, I would say looking for a better word than this always, by the way, uh, in a masochistic way, I I looped back, if you will, to that and brought it to her attention. Now that's actually edging toward an interpretation, which I wasn't gonna get into in this lecture, but it's also a confrontation, in the sense of uh, confrontation, sounds too aggressive. It's not. It's often not aggressive. It's often more just gently pointing out to someone something they're not seeing, like their fists are clenched when they talk about their mother or father. Um, the hesitation. Oh, one quick thing about confrontations that very important. I haven't said much about empathy, which is also a form of engagement even though it's also this background presence idea that I lectured about last time. Um, uh, whenever you confront, you, you almost always want to follow up with empathy. And the, adi- the idea is, uh, which someone taught me many years ago, is that people, are, are, people often struggle with shame. I've long believed that every patient that walks into my office, any therapist's office, they come with whatever problem brings them into the room and then they have a layer of shame about the fact that they have that problem. So when you confront, let's say, with the young woman I just mentioned and I talk about how she, you know, bent over backwards, take your time, etc. You want to quickly follow up with uh, understanding why it makes sense that they're that way. Now, sadly, I don't know really enough about her background, but I know there was a lot of neglect by her father, which I'm sure will become an issue between she and I, since I am about her father's age, and uh, which led her to feel that she's really not worthy, which will lead her to uh, believe that, you know, take your time, my time's worth nothing compared to yours. By the way, one of these lectures, I'll talk about highly narcissistic patients, and you'd have a completely different experience, like, first of all, well, that's partially why you never keep an initial patient waiting five minutes, because you don't know what their style is. Uh, Years ago, I had a, a rather prestigious professor that would be looking at his very high tech watch. Every time I walked in the waiting room, like checking if I was even 15 seconds late. So there you have the opposite experience, like his time is always more valuable than mine. And Uh, There was many confrontations about that. I'm coming to the end of the time now. I covered the clinical example of the young woman, which was on my little list here. I just want to say quickly about questions, because one of my dear colleagues, Diane Lauren, was uh, when she went through psychoanalytic training, she was actually taught never ask a question. And the logic behind that would be that you don't want to lead the patient. You don't want to structure them in any way. I was not particularly taught that, so I understand why she was taught that, and I um, I get it, I respectfully disagree, but the caveat about questions is that, for example, with some passive patients, you have to be aware of where the therapy can convert into uh, they come in and you ask them questions. Then you wanna confront and interpret that if that starts to happen. But there's nothing wrong with um, Uh, someone, in the case of this young woman, for example, uh, giving a glancing report about the abuse from the father and then you saying, oh, I'd like to hear some more about that. Or uh, uh, this woman also made a suicide attempt a couple years ago and on about the fourth session, she was talking about some self-destructive thoughts and I just felt it was the right time. That goes back to the performance art part of our work, which was the main part of it. And I said, you know, you never mentioned to me much about that suicide attempt. I'd like to hear more about that. You know, there are a very conservative analytic supervisor who would have had a cow. Those of you listeners that remember that slang word over me asking a question like that. You know, there's just a time that, that you do that. But for all the reasons I said, you don't want to do it to excess. So bringing the session to an end now, haha, I introduced the whole podcast to you as I've been doing every time. Uh, And then I really focused on methods of engagement, and this will be the first of two or three lectures specifically focusing on engagement. And today I covered clarification of feelings, focused empathy, which I really talked about more last lecture, confrontations, looping back, and uh, asking questions. I sure hope this is helpful to you all. It's really a joy for me to do, and I'll see you at the next lecture. Bye-bye.